Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of St. Luke. And today we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, words of grace coming from the lips of Jesus. Let's start with Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. And again, I'll promise to try to have applications for marriage and family life in each of these family Bible studies. It's sometimes a challenge to do, but I'll try to do that today as well. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, as his custom was, on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, I need to start with where we finished in that reading, whereas the Revised Standard Version, which I strongly recommend, every now and then we need a slight correction to the translation. The translation could be gracious words, as the RSV does, or it could be words of grace. In other words, They just didn't like the overall effect of what Jesus was saying in a gracious way. But his actual teaching and his reading from the prophet Isaiah were words of grace. He was teaching about grace. And I believe uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright is correct when he, in his own translation, translates this, words of sheer grace. In other words, grace that is unmixed and unqualified with anything else, pure grace. And it says that the people were astonished at his speaking about grace, because if you catch what probably the synagogue audience did catch, he was saying something rather shocking that grace wasn't just for the select few. God's grace was for everybody, including those who many of the Jews in the first century were expecting to receive the judgment of God. You see, Jesus went on right after the passage that I read to you and started talking about Elijah going to a Gentile woman not to a Jewish woman, and performing an act of grace on her behalf. And Jesus, after he read, gave two examples of 
prophets going to the Gentiles and the same people saying, oh, what tremendous words of grace. Is is this Joseph's son? Where is this coming from? And the same crowd turns around and we're filled with wrath against Jesus and was ready to throw him over the, the top of a hill. Why is that? Well, because Jesus had a radical message of sheer grace. Grace unmixed with anything else. Grace especially to the undeserving. And in the Jewish mind, who was more undeserving than the Gentiles? The Gentiles, the non-Jews. Now, there were exceptions, and most of the Jews would recognize this, but basically the Gentiles were idolaters. The Gentiles were those who practiced gross acts of immorality. The Gentiles were to experience the wrath of God. And what was perhaps so shocking to this audience is that Jesus didn't finish the verse he was reading. From Isaiah chapter 61, where he was reading, it concludes with to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then the part he left out, and the day of vengeance of our God. Yes, God isn't a pushover. He will judge all sinners who refuse to repent and believe at the second coming of Christ. But in the age in which we are living, the gospel is a message of pure grace to the undeserving. Now, here is a group of people who obviously styled themselves as deserving of God's grace. And here's where you miss it. You think you're deserving of God's grace? You think you've earned God's grace? You're missing God's grace. Grace is so unqualified, unfiltered, it goes to the undeserving. And that's the exact point. Grace goes to the undeserving. And the reason Jesus came for both Jew and Gentile, is that both are undeserving. And by God's grace and love, he bestows forgiveness on both Jew and Gentile. But this is the point. The Gentiles were certainly undeserving, no question. But the point is, no one is deserving of God's grace. And here's a practical application that Catholics in the 21st century really need to get. God doesn't love us because we are good boys and girls. In other words, that's not the instruction we give our kids. God doesn't love us as adults because we're good men and women. No, God fundamentally loves us because of something inside of himself not something inside of us. And this really, this is where the mind really has to be conformed and transformed by the word of grace. Because we think, well, the only possible way that God could love me is I was lovable. 
And that's true in every human relationship, business relationship, sports relationships, whatever. It's all, you know, kind of grading on the curve, evaluating each other by who we are, what we've done, what we own, what we have accomplished, or this or this or that. That's, that's not Christianity. Christianity is best succinctly summed up in that real simple letter of 1 John in the Bible. You know, I think there was a radio host within the past week that just mentioned this, this book of the Bible. That was me, by the way. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's the good news. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. This is Christianity. You start with God and you start with God's love to the undeserving. If you think you're deserving of God's love, you're a firm believer in some religion other than Christianity because you've got got it 180 backwards. And so many people, and I'm not picking on Catholics, I'm not picking on Protestants, because so many people who attend church, Protestant or Catholic, have it backwards. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Now, you might say, well, how could God love somebody who is undeserving? Because he's God. That's the point. And God's different from us. And that's why he sent his son Jesus, because we were in need of his grace. And not that we were deserving, but that we were undeserving. Now, somebody might say, particularly Catholics who try to get the balance here, yeah, but aren't we supposed to obey God? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. We certainly are. But you have to get it in the right order, or you're going to have a lot of trouble. And I'm speaking to parents, and I'm speaking to catechists, and priests, and deacons, and radio hosts, and everyone else. You have to get the order right, or you will get the very opposite result of whatever moral life and life of obedience to Christ you're trying to promote. You'll get the dead opposite of it. And here's the order. First John chapter 4 and verse 19. And this would be a really good scripture to put up on the refrigerator. This would be a really good scripture to put into your heart. And it's this, we love because he first loved us. Now, I have that 1 John 4, 19 written out. And what I did to try to kind of bring this home deeply to my mind, I underlined the word because, and I just did the C-A-U-S-E in because. In other words, the cause, the cause for our relationship with God is that he first loved us. It's not that we are lovingly obedient to God and he in return chooses to forgive us and take us to heaven forever. No, that's not it. And let me tell you something. This can be very hard 
for those who have lived a faithful Christian life, maybe were baptized as a baby, growing up in a good Christian home, and tried to live a faithful life, but you've got to get a handle on this one, because in our day, particularly our children growing up in our culture, you need an exceptionally strong Christian faith, and that faith is built on the foundation of words of grace, words of sheer grace, words of unqualified grace. We don't love because we're trying to earn a relationship with God. We loved because he first loved us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Now, the folks who heard Jesus proclaim words of grace and and liberation and freedom, the Spirit is with him, anointed me to preach the good news, they tried to kill him. Uh, and, and don't say, oh, those people. <laughs> those people, they're ourselves. This is what goes on in so many Christian hearts. And again, this is the most widespread belief that I have ever seen, both as a former evangelical pastor and as a Catholic for the past quarter of a century, across the board, earning your way to heaven. What, what's getting to heaven? It's kind of a pious to-do list and a pious not-to-do list. Uh-uh. That is not it. You start with faith in God, who is love, who loves the undeserving. If you don't have that, you haven't gotten to first base in the game called Christianity. It's absolutely and utterly essential. Now, it's very interesting to me that his disciples, and we might comment on this, but, you know, who in the world wanting to initiate a religion worldwide would start with a bunch of fishermen? I mean, really, come on. I mean, these are tough guys. Um, they're not formally educated. They might have been very pious in their practice of the Jewish faith when he called them, but they were fishermen. Who would do this? Well, they may not have known everything, and you know, there is a tendency, and I'll, I'll confess I have this myself, and so I, I practice, try to practice some self-control here. You know, you can learn a lot about theology, about philosophy, about church history. You learn a lot of facts, but sometimes when you kind of fill your mind with these things, you miss the main point. And it's very easy, even for companies, to lose why they're even functioning as a company. It's easy for Christians to lose the main point. But these fishermen did not. They followed in the footsteps of Jesus, and as a result of their preaching, the pagan Roman Empire was transformed from the inside out. We think we have to transform the outside so God loves us, and then we become religious hypocrites is what happens. No, we first take hold of the love of God by faith, based on the truth of Scripture, and then we're transformed. But how did the apostles preach? Well, we just turned to the second part of Luke's two-part work, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. He wrote both. Entire, entire work, basically, it was designed to go together. This is what he said in Acts 14 and verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, 
who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God bore witness to the word of his grace. That's what the apostles were proclaiming, just like Jesus's hometown sermon in Luke chapter 4. You go towards the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. Here St. Paul says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, to become sanctified is to become holy, to become transformed into living a holy life. And so many people think that in order to have folks grow in holiness, you need to start having some laws, some legalism, some basing whatever people are believing in is stuff they do, where St. Paul is going away. He's never coming back. And he's saying to these first century Catholics, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And that's able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Now, somebody might say, well, if we don't teach just a little legalism, then people will not do what they're supposed to do. And by legalism, I'm talking about substituting stuff we do to faith in the love of God. And the strongest book of the New Testament writing against this is Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And in chapter 5, he says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, in other words, Jew or Gentile, is of any avail, but faith working through love. Faith works through love. Faith does not work through law. Faith does not work through legalism. Faith does not work through pious to-do list. St. Paul goes on. You were running well. This is these are Catholics evangelized by St. Paul. You were running well. You're doing a good job. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, well, we were just teaching legalism so people would obey the truth. If we don't tell them, don't lay down the law, well, then they're not going to obey. And St. Paul goes on. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from God. If it's not from God, watch out. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You only need a little bit of this legalism, my pious to-do list, to spoil one's entire Christian life. In other words, these first century Catholics who had been evangelized by no one less than the Apostle Paul himself, depending on God's grace, were running well. They were having their faith active through love, and as a result, they were doing great, and now it's like you're going around a quarter-mile race, and you're coming to the final curve, and you get caught up in somebody's ankle, and bam, flat on your face. This is saying, you were running well, and now who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
Well, they're thinking, well, we're just having a little legalism so people will obey the truth. No, the opposite will happen. And just that little bit is enough to spoil the whole lump. Now, the goal for the rest of this broadcast is to get myself tossed from the same hill that they tried to toss Jesus over because they thought, oh, boy, this sounds just great. I'm talking about the people in the synagogue who heard Jesus read it. And then he started talking about God's love to the undeserving, and they were ready to toss him over the hill. Well, here I might get tossed over the hill, but I think we need to reevaluate how we're doing some things, and perhaps totally unintentionally, we're conveying a message that in reality is a little leaven that leavens the lump, that makes it seem like it's stuff we do that causes us to be deserving of God's love, deserving of God's grace. And let me just go right into it. The practice of giving requirements in many Catholic circles or giving laws. Um, You have to use an envelope system in order to be a genuine member of Jesus's church or to get a sacrament or to be married or, or for whatever. And not only is this conveying a message, and, and again, I recognize that doing this may have no intent whatsoever to try to promote a legalistic view of Christianity, but I'm talking about how it's received. You've got to jump over certain hurdles in order to be accepted versus being accepted, and you think, hey, give me hurdles. I'm ready to go. Why? Because God loves me, and i yeah, I'm made in such a way that once that love touches the depths of my being, I want to love him back. Give me hurdles. But rather, when you set up hurdles between a person and God, ooh, that's, that stuff is, is, is not working. Let me tell you how St. Paul did, because he was a, you know, besides just a genius in theology, if you understand the basic word of grace in the New Testament— you are also basically the equivalent of the very best PhD in psychology because you know how human beings work. You know how human beings are motivated. You know the power that comes from a heart that's been touched by God's grace. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, St. Paul is trying to raise funds. Actually, he's trying to do it starting in chapter 8, but we'll start with chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. He writes this, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the offering for the saints. He's raising money. Each one of you must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in Greek, that word cheerful is the root word we get the word hilarious from. God loves a hilarious, not reluctant, not under compulsion giver. In other words, God's love has touched them. And if you try to insert laws, well, what are you doing? You're putting a little leaven in there that, you know, money is one of the things that really grabs the human heart. And how in the world are you going to get somebody to be generous? 
emphasize that there's no compulsion and just give them the words of grace. Let the love of God touch them, and by faith, they will respond. You'll think, oh, man, this will never work. Well, you know, I attended a church years ago that emphasized this very verse, and they told us that God loves this hilarious giver. And there was one, I remember, um, who's the guy that jumps off buildings for movies? You know, the the guy who does the uh, the daredevil acts and this type of thing. And he converted, and he was giving somewhere around 70 to 75% of his income to this church. Uh-uh. See, there was no compulsion. There was no uh, <laughs> forced you know, you have to do this. No, his heart was changed. His heart was touched. He was living by faith and responded by faith. In chapter eight, St. Paul does the same thing. And, you know, money is where the really the, the, the kind of uh, forces of the old man want to keep us back, okay? But God's grace can liberate us even here. St. Paul says, we want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God. For a severe test of their affliction, their abundance of joy, and even in their extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. And, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, we never seem to have enough money in the churches and this and that. It could literally quadruple if the emphasis was on the word of grace, unqualified, undiluted, sheer grace. And might say, well, you know, in a really high immoral culture like ours, we need some legalism. We need pious to-do lists and such. And it's interesting, Corinthians was, in my estimation, the most immoral city in the Roman Empire. It was, it was horrible. And here's what St. Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not grace plus or something plus plus grace. No, it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than anyone. Grace does not say let you off the hook and become a, a do-nothing Christian. No, I worked harder than any of them, but he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God, which is within me. That's the ultimate motivation of human beings, just waiting to be ignited. And the nice thing about living with the pressures of the 21st century is that it's forcing us to go back and depend on that which worked in the first century can be applied to us in the 21st, Jesus's word of grace. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 233 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.